Welcome to Dark Britain. Unfortunately, Chloe couldn't be with us on this episode of the podcast. She had some urgent things to attend to for her uh, PhD. But nevertheless, we have a fantastic episode for you. I had the chance to sit down with Annie Whitehead, a top Anglo-Saxon historian and critically acclaimed author, to talk about a thrilling story of a man that was once voted the most evil man in British history. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Annie Whitehead. This is the story of powerful Mercian families and a man who was once voted the most evil man in British history. It's a tale of treachery, power, betrayal and murder. And joining us today to discuss this thrilling part of Britain's dark history is top Anglo-Saxon historian and best-selling author Annie Whitehead. So Annie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, what drew you to history? Yeah, well, as you said, I'm an author and an historian, and I didn't really mean to become either. It's just the way it happened. So I, was, I always wanted to write. And I think when we spoke before, um, my interest in history, I think, began when I lived in York when I was eight years old and mm. I was homeschooled for six months. And being homeschooled in York basically means museums and history and historical sites. So I just lapped it all up and that kind of stayed with me. And then um, my undergraduate years, I was very, very fortunate. I, I, I don't think it's the case now, but at the time when I was studying way back in the last century, um, <laughs> courses that offered uh, the opportunity to learn about pre-conquest England were few and far between. And right. I was able to find a course that offered lots of that and a really brilliant lecturer and historian, Anne Williams, was my tutor. And so I really just got involved in learning as much as I could about that period. And then later on, when I started writing seriously, when I found time in amongst life, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the two sort of combined together. And now I do equal amounts of writing history and writing fiction but it's nearly all of it based in pre-conquest England and nearly all of it based in Mercia. So uh, I know quite a lot about a very tiny portion of history. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. And, and like you say, growing up in, in York, being home educated there, is that kind of where your love for pre-conquest England came from or has it always been kind of your interest? I think it possibly just sparked an interest in history generally. Sure. Um, and certainly at that time, um, Jorvik York hadn't really been, I mean, certainly the, the Jorvik thing hadn't been uh, excavated. I think they probably started digging that up um, just after I left. So it was more the sort of later medieval history. But I just think I, I've always been drawn to the earlier periods. Um, mm. So my A-level history project, I chose to do that on at the time I called the Celts, which is not, not a word we tend to use anymore, but the, the yeah. British tribes and people that were here before the Angles and the Saxons and all the rest came. So I think it's that, that very early 
period that's always interested me and the fiction that I read was always based in you know that kind of period or slightly later because not many people were writing about that so sure. yeah it's it's an appeal I can't really explain it but I do find it absolutely fascinating yeah no I can I can attest to that that feeling of just being fascinated for something basically for no other reason than you find it fascinating <laughs> Um, but so this story, the most evil man in British history, oh. do you mind uh, setting the scene for us? Where do we find ourselves in history? Okay, so we are at the very, very beginning of the 11th century. Right. So it starts uh, 1002, so just, just after it's, it's changed to a new, I can't say the word, millennium, there we go. <laughs> um, so it's at the, round about the middle of Athelred the Unready's reign. Okay, and it's it's just basically a wonderful story of, um, uh, I mean, before they were even a thing, over mighty barons, which you hear about later on during King John's reign, but but really the the nobles, almost taking control, and it's it's a deep dark secret. It's about a uh, secret um, story about powerful families and the ways they're interconnected and, and how one evil man seemingly tried to exploit that and then ended up being a victim of it. So, yeah, it's a fabulous tale. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Um, would this be considered the Dark Ages? Would we still...? I mean, the term Dark Ages obviously isn't used uh, terribly much now, and it did tend to mean the idea that we didn't know very much about the period because mm. there was much left in the way of written record. I mean, that's not true. And obviously we've now got such a wealth of archeological um, evidence as well. So, but I mean, you think the Sutton Hoo burial was only unearthed in 1939. So for wow. a long time, we didn't even know that existed. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the dark ages, I guess, is, I think it's supposed to cover up to the year 1066 when we were all right. civilized by the Normans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, this, amazing. This is the kind of the run up to that. It, it's it's the reign of Ethelred the Unready. Who's I mean that's that's what his names come to mean. He, I don't think he was well. When in a way, some ways he wasn't quite ready, but it does mean actually it's a play on his name, which means noble council. Um, and the idea is that he wasn't very well counselled. So a stricter translation might be Athelred the ill-counselled or the ill-advised. And so that gives you a hint about the nobles that were surrounding him and, and perhaps trying to play things out to their own agendas. Mm. It paints a little bit of a better picture for Athelred as well. <laughs> yeah, although he's not completely blameless in, in this okay. story, I have to say. <laughs> Okay, so our main character in this story, I'm going to ask you how best to pronounce his name before I hazard a guess. Um, right. How should we best pronounce it? Well, I think he's commonly known. I mean, it's spelled E-A-D-R-I-C. Mm -hmm. um, I'll get onto his so-called surname in a second. Um, but basically, at the end of um, Old English names, if there's a C, it tends to be pronounced ch rather okay. than a hard and at the beginning, you might think, okay, so that's Eadrich. But actually, the E-A is the same way that the names we still use today were spelt. So Edward and Edmund and Edgar. 
So wow. I think probably Edrich would be. Edrich. That, that's my best guess. Yeah. And it's a little easier to say than Eadrich, which is a little bit clumsy. And then Strayona um, is his, they didn't have surnames. Um, they, they were just who they were. And occasionally they had some kind of nicknames. There's a wonderful one who was uh, called um, Cuttlefish. Don't know why, but that was amazing. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you get things like obviously probably most people have heard of Edith the Swan Neck, who was mm. Harold Godwinson's um, handfasted woman. So they were more descriptive names than actual surnames. Um, but Striona, we think probably means the grasper or the acquisitor. Um, so right. it gives you an idea of, of how history has remembered him. Absolutely, absolutely. So Edrich, who yeah, is he? I, I What's his so. story? Edrich, well, a um, little bit of a, a, a jumped up Johnny come lately, really, a parvenu. He seems to have come from quite a, a lowly family in Shropshire. And we know the name of his father. Uh, we think he was called Athelrich, but that's about as much as I can tell you about him. We know that Edrich had five or six, maybe more brothers. And what happens is around 1002, Edrich starts appearing at court, and we know this because any charters that were issued by the kings were, um, the names of the witnesses were added in a very particular order. Right. So it starts off with the king, and then his family, then the archbishops, if they're there, then the leading clergy, and then you get onto the secular noblemen. And the pecking order, as I say, is very important. And around about 1002, Edrich first appears on those lists. And about five years later, he's appearing first on those lists. So that's that's quite a rapid rise. Wow. And around about the time he appears, we find names in clumps of twos or threes. These names seem to be the names of his brothers. So it seems that this family has arrived in court and just gradually working their way up through the ranks and that's great and by 1007 Edrich has been appointed Earl of Mercia or I should say Elderman of Mercia mm -hmm. they weren't Earls at that point um, but he'd also around about that time done an extraordinary thing which is that he'd married the king's daughter wow and this I mean nowadays you wouldn't you know the, the, uh, at first glance, there's nothing extraordinary about that, but we go way, way back um, to the 7th, 8th and even 9th centuries when the kingdoms of England were still that. They were kingdoms. And what you find is that kings would marry their daughters or their sisters to other kings. Right. They're used as an alliance. So the daughter of the king of Kent might be married to the son of the king of Northumbria. It's very, very unusual for those wives and daughters and sisters um, to not to, to marry anything other than another member of royalty. Mm. So, Edrich, I mean, that's that's quite an achievement, especially yeah. for the reasonably lowly born man. The only other example that we can really find that is anything like equal, you have to go back over a hundred years. To when Alfred the Great's daughter, Athelflad, was married to Athelrad, Lord of the Mercians. Right. So he wasn't a king, but he was ruling Mercia 
Mm. So again, it's it's not quite comparable. Mm. So yeah, so in, in a matter of five years, Edrich has come from seemingly nowhere to being wow. the king's son-in-law. Wow. And Athelred the king also uh, later on married another one of his daughters to Uhtred, who became Earl of Northumbria. And there's been some suggestion um, that Athelred had lost all the advisors that had been there when he became king. So the, one of the previous earls of mercy who had actually supported him in his bid to become king, that his bid, he was just a child. Um, and uh, some of the leading bishops and some of the other members of the leading families had all died. And the important thing about them is that they were all part of the extended royal family. It's almost like he lost his royal kin. Wow. So there has been a suggestion that by marrying his leading nobles to his daughters, he was sort of creating a new kinship group for himself. I mean, that's that's one possibility, but it certainly is almost completely unprecedented. Mm. So, yeah, so Edrich really, you know, rose very quickly through the ranks. Wow. Um, so, so do you think that that's illustrative of Edrich's ability or his kind of... Uh, strategic plays or something like that or maybe more the political system of the time or how did he get there well that's a really interesting question because we don't know right um the, i mean the, the first thing that happened um during his um tenure as it were um was the murder of the elderman uh mercia uh, of northumbria beg your pardon uh, a man called alfhelm Right. And in 1006, we're told that he was killed and his sons were blinded. And Whoa. another man who was associated with them was deprived of all his property. Now, this didn't all happen on the same day, but it happened all around the same time. Sure. Um, and not all the sources blame Edrich, but one of them does in spectacular style and it's a familiar trope it's the old invited out on a hunting trip and then ambushed um and similarly the sons when they were blinded they were at the time um guests at a royal house so you know it's just not it's not cricket in mm. in these times hospitality was a, a big thing so right. if you went somewhere upon invitation the expectation was that you wouldn't be harmed. So whoever's doing this um, is doing it in a very underhand way. Um, right. And Edrich has largely been blamed for this. Now, going back to your question, was he doing this on the king's orders? Or was he doing it because although Alfhelm, the man who was killed, was um, ruling Northumbria, he was actually a Mercian. Right. And it may be that there was some, you know, local rivalry going on. Mm. It may be that the king knew that there was this local rivalry going on and actually exploited it. But it does seem like there's been some kind of intrigue and then some kind of purge to get rid of these people. Um, but it's actually a really, really important incident because it, it, it to my mind, it informs everything that then happened. So, yeah, so in 1006, that happened. And then in 1007, Edrich became Earl of Mercia or Elderman. I'll say Earl because it's easier to say. Um, there sure. is 
a slight technical difference, but but not much. So so yes, that is really what kickstarted it all off. And what Edridge's motives were, not sure, but mm. he only stood to gain from it. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> This episode of the podcast is brought to you by BCAD Clothing. Most of the time, history-themed hoodies and t-shirts are childish, cheesy, in-your-face, and most of the time, frankly, unwearable. But at BCAD Clothing, they create subversive, stylish, and subtle history-themed clothing that you can wear and not feel embarrassed. <laughs> they also use 100% sustainable, organic and environmentally friendly cotton in all their items so that it's good for the planet as well. And the quality is insane. It just feels good to wear. If you want to check out the full range, you can head to presenthistory.co.uk, press shop in the menu and check it out. Right, right. And that, that's kind of my next question. Uh, on Alfhelm's death, what was the aftermath of that? Who who gained what, and and what was the aftermath of his death? Well, nothing initially. Um, so a man named Uhtred became Earl of Northumbria. Right. Um, I can't find any suggestion that he was in any way involved. I think he just happened to be the next bloke who was appointed. Um, Adrich really remained top dog. He mm. was appointed um, Earl of the entirety of Mercia, um, even though there were other nobles sort of ruling bits of it, but but he was the, the chief administrator. Um, and then sort of unfortunately for everyone, um, those pesky Vikings started coming back. Yeah. Uh, in ten, oh, you'll have to forgive me with the dates. I think it was 1007, mm -hmm. a Viking army uh, or navy, I should say, appeared in Sandwich in Kent and Edrich is already being blamed for not playing his part. Right. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something, I think, um, is that when he uh, hindered um, efforts uh, as he always did? Um, something like that. Yeah. We've got to remember that all of this is written with hindsight sure. and, in the, and in the knowledge of what Edrich did later, which was much, much worse. Um, but clearly he wasn't doing what he should have been doing in, in 1007. Um, it may be that he didn't feel that it was his problem because Kent's a long way from Mercia. So maybe he didn't feel that he needed to um, send the troops. But anyway, he didn't. Um, there was a bigger incident in 1009 when uh, Thorkill the Tall's army came over. And yeah, Edrich just didn't really seem to have been doing what he should somehow. Interesting. Um, and so it is difficult to pick it apart because although the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was pretty contemporary by this stage, they were still writing with the, the hindsight and the knowledge um, of what was to come. Right. So, yeah, he was... Um, maybe just not quite as enthusiastic as he might have been expected to be shall we say but then things, things got much much worse well i'm i'm intrigued what what happened next okay so i'll just quickly run through the timeline um so thorkel at all who who come um as uh an invade with 
his invading army, um, actually uh, eventually went over to King Athelred's side. Um, and that was fine, that was okay. But mm. um, the next man who came was a guy called Sven Forkbeard. Nice, that's um, a good name, strong name. That's good, strong name. And so this is where the link with Alfhelm and the Mercians becomes important because right. Sven managed... Um, although he he landed in the southeast, he sort of worked his way up north. Um, Uhtred um, of Northumbria seems to have submitted to him. And then Swain worked his way round into Mercia. And we're not told that Edrich submitted to him. So right. I'm strongly of the belief that he didn't, because mm -hmm. I think the Chronicle would have said so. You know, the, the Chronicle really does not like him. I think they would have said, had he submitted... But it right. looks like a lot of the other Mercians, particularly members of that Mercian family, did. Um, wow. At some point, Elfhelm's daughter, Elfieva, was married to Swain's son, Canute. Right. So we don't know exactly when that marriage took place um a lot of people say that it wasn't actually a marriage that she was only ever his concubine she certainly was very important to him so i i like to say that he considered her to be his wife now whether that happened when swain arrived or whether that marriage took place later not sure but it certainly took place and that again is hugely important so um Briefly, um, Swain was eventually uh, proclaimed full king. Ethelred took off abroad with his family. Um, Swain died. And then there's a famous bit where the English actually asked Ethelred to come back, but wow. basically only if he promised to rule them more wisely than he had done before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he came back, and then there's a little bit of um, retribution going on. There are a couple of brothers called Sifath and Morkar who were leading thanes. They're described as the leading thanes of the seven boroughs, um, mm. uh, important strategic towns in Mercia, essentially. And had, had both been, um, Morkar was given land in Derbyshire by the king mm. and Sifath was uh, remembered in the king's eldest son's will. So they were movers and shakers in courtly circles as well. Um, and in 1015, they were killed by right. Edrich. No way. <laughs> Again, very probably on the king's orders um, because we think that they had been instrumental in getting the area of the seven boroughs. Normally known as the five boroughs, the, the important mm. towns like uh, Nottingham, Derby, Leicester, Stamford, Lincoln, um, that they had been instrumental in whipping up support for Swain Fortbeard, essentially, and this was their punishment. And that might have been that, except it gets murkier still. So by this time, um, King Athelred's eldest son had died, and he left mm. a really important will, which is where we get a lot of this information from. And the next son in line was Edmund, known to history as Edmund Ironside. And for whatever reason, Edmund got really, really upset. So after the murders of Sifath and Morkar, Sifath's widow was actually imprisoned by King Athelred. Right. And Edmund uh, rescued her, released her from prison, and married her. Wow. 
So now he has got, and, and all the people who lived on Cephas and Morquas lands then submitted to Edmund. So here we've got a thing going on. Have we got um, the eldest son of the king making his own bid for the crown? Wow. Um, I'm not sure that Athelred realised the implications when he ordered these murders. I don't know whether Edrich realised the implications when he carried out the murders. Um, but yeah, it left Edrich in a really difficult position because uh, not long after that, actually, King Athelred died. Um, right. And Canute, of course, had come back and Adrich then had to make a really difficult decision. Who was he going to support? Mm. Because I actually think, I mean, he'd, whether he'd been doing it for his own reasons and his own ambition, it does seem that he'd been carrying out the king's orders with the killings. Right. But this important Mercian family. So we've now got the daughter of the man that Adrich killed initially, married to Canute. But Morcar, one of the thanes that was then killed, uh, his wife was actually Elphieber of Northampton's cousin. Wow. So what Edrich has done, <laughs> unwittingly or not, has alienated people on both sides. So now what does he do? Does he support Canute? Or does he support Edmund? Gosh. You know, he, what does he do? They, they are both going to be out for his blood. Mm. Uh, so it looks like he started playing one side off against the other. Wow. Um, initially, he sided with Canute. Mm -hmm. And what happened was there was, there was a sort of a bit of a, a scurry. So Edmund had allied with Uhtred of Northumbria. And instead of facing Canute in battle, they attacked Edrich's lands in Mercia. And actually, Edmund was accused of cowardice, you know, or he won't stand and, and face the enemy. But I think it was a bit more strategic than that, because if they destroyed Edrich's lands, then they destroyed his ability to uh, refuel, essentially. Yeah. You know, um, if you destroy someone's crops, then they can't feed their army. Um, if you make sure that they've got, they can't... Um, get new you know fresh horses to their troops um so you know it's sabotage and it's you know it sort of paid off to a point uh, i think perhaps they were hoping to draw edrich back into his own territory as well but it kind of backfired because canute decided to do the same thing to utrid's lands oh <laughs> <laughs> so utrid had to go tearing off into northumbria and guess what according to some of the sources um utrid was then killed by Edrich. No way. Oh my <laughs> word. Okay. So not all the sources blame Edrich. And there is um, a source that, that comes from the north that suggests that Uhtred's murder was completely different and it was to do with local um, politics and power play in the north. Right. Uh, but, you know, Edrich once again is is named as, as you know, being involved in yet another murder. 
So, um, I mean, he's getting a terrible reputation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's and leaving that, dead bodies wherever he goes. This is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And he still hadn't finished. So in 1016, it was it was a year of, I mean, everything happened. So uh, 23rd of April, King Africa died. And then there were five battles fought between Edmund and Canute. And the second one, um, Edrich was accused of treachery. Because he'd, uh, according to one source, he managed to persuade the English that their leader was dead. Uh, Not true, obviously. Um, The fourth of these five battles, the English had the upper hand. And then an incredible thing happened, which was that Edrich, seemingly with, well, I mean, if if the English had the upper hand, then maybe he was just out to try to save his own skin. But he went to Edmund um, and basically said, will you take me back? I want to be on your side now. Oh, my Um, word. And the crazy thing is that Edmund accepted him back. (laughs) And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, you know, never was such a foolish thing done. Yeah. Uh, Ask me why? I don't know. (laughs) But I will go back to your earlier question. Why did King Athelbad promote Edrich so much? Mm. And you have to start wondering, was he a really, really good um, manipulator? Did he have some charismatic charm? Um, you know, but anyway, it, it did nobody any good because the fifth and final battle was the battle known as Ashingham. Um, where Edrich was accused of leading his men off the field. And so Canute won. Um, There was a decision, um, strangely, to divide the kingdom, but Edmund died not long afterwards and Canute became king of all English. Um, But again, one chronicler, it's a slightly later chronicler, and he's the only one who says so, um, suggests that it was one of Edrich's sons that killed Edmund. Um, in lovely wow. Game of Thrones fashion by attacking yeah. it, stab- stabbing him from underneath whilst he was visiting the toilet facilities. No way. Put it that <laughs> that yeah. was very delicate. Well, well yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I say, only, only one chronicler um, actually suggests that. But again, it gives you the measure of, of how much people were willing to point the finger at Edrich. Absolutely. Um, And he's turning it into a bit of a family business as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And unfortunately for him, of course, Kidit did initially reward him and confirmed him as Earl of Mercia. But there were two people, I think, who were instrumental in Edrich's downfall at this point. One, obviously, Elphieber of Northampton. Mm -hmm. No reason to want Edrich to stay alive after what he did to her family. No. but another man was a, a man called Godwin, who was to become very instrumental. Um, now, Edrich's brother had accused Godwin's father of treachery uh, to the point where Godwin's father had uh, taken off with 20 or so ships of the English Navy. Uh, Edrich's brother had gone chasing after him and then managed to lose all the ships that he was uh, controlling. Wow. So between the two of them, with Canute being advised by Godwin and married to Elfieva, Edrich didn't really stand much of a chance. And there's a famous line where Canute said, uh, 
pay this man what we owe him. Wow. And uh, and the payment was that Edwidge was uh, beheaded. Wow. So that was the end of him. Gosh, what a what a story! What a career this man yeah. had. That that's crazy. Just a little side note question: Is uh, Godwin Harold Godwinson's father? He is indeed. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Right. So that then his family um, also did this wonderful trick of of rising from. We don't really know Godwin's background, but um, came very very quickly to prominence in a very short space of time. So mm. yeah. And wow. did have a hand in the little bit of the aftermath, um, which was that after Knut's death, um, there was a big old scrap for the throne between two of his sons and, more importantly, his two widows. And at one point um, in 1036, Edward, future Edward the Confessor, and his brother Alfred sailed back to England from France. They've been there pretty much since they ran away from, from Spain. Um, and there's a theory that these little Alfred was killed, but there's a theory that he might have actually been um, handed over to Godwin and Elphieber of Northampton, who then took the ultimate revenge. The previous king had had her brothers blinded Little Alfred, apparently, I'm saying little, he wasn't that little at the time. He was also blinded before he Gosh. was killed. And I'm just wondering if Elfieva, 20 years, exactly 20 years on from when her father was killed and her brothers were blinded, ordered the same to be done to the king's son, who ordered that to be done to her family. So, I mean, it's, I say Game of Thrones, it is really serious, murky stuff, and it's all about revenge and... Mm. Um, yeah, bitter family rivalries. Incredible story. I love Absolutely. it. <laughs> Absolutely. And the crazy thing is all of it's real. This this all really happened. That's the crazy part of yeah. it. Um, yeah. And you mentioned Alfieva and her um, her role in the story while Edrich was still alive, but then her role in the aftermath of his death. And I think that something that's often overlooked in Anglo-Saxon early medieval history is the role of women and the influence that they could have had. But this is something that you've written about extensively. So in this story of uh, Edrich and other Anglo-Saxon stories, the role of women is, is fascinating. What did the role of women look like in this story in particular? Well, first and foremost, I do wonder about the, the two daughters of King mm. Athelred, um, who um, were married to Edrich and Uhtred, and then one killed the other one's husband. You have yeah. to wonder what, what that felt like. Um, Absolutely. Um, poor, uh, we think her name was Aldith, um, uh, Cephas' widow, who was imprisoned and then married to Edmund Ironside. We are not told whether she had any say in the matter. Um, I suspect not. I mean, she, she would have known Edmund. I think they all... It's like the young men of the court, the king's sons and Cephas and Morka. I think they were probably all good friends, so she might have known him, but that doesn't necessarily mean she was happy to be married to him. So there's that to consider. But then, of course, Elfieva of Northampton and Knut's second wife, Emma, who, of course, had been married to Ethelred the Unready. Yeah. So, um, yes, they, they really fought um, for their son's rights to rule. Um, Elfieva had been regent of Norway um, on behalf of 
her son by Canute Swain. That that didn't go down too well. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of uh, mudslinging. Elfieva was accused of bribery. Emma commissioned this uh, really important book, the Encomium Emma Regine, that was basically pure propaganda for her cause. Uh, wow. Didn't even mention her first husband. It was it was all about her sons by Canute. Um, both of those men, Harold Harefoot and Harthur Canute, only ruled for two years each apiece, roughly. Um, and Alfieva was said by one 20th century historian to, to, to have been running the country when wow. her son Harold was in charge. Um, and Emma, four sons, um, none survived except Edward the Confessor. And pretty much one of the first things he did when he became full king was to deprive her of all her treasures. Um, oh. They weren't close. Okay. But I mean, these women, they really, really fought for their sons. They, they weren't prepared to just sit quietly with their needlework. And, you know, so they, they really did come to prominence and were wielding power and influence, I think, in a totally different way. You know, they weren't fighting but yet they were fighting, if you know what yeah. I mean. So yeah, really, really strong characters. And if I'm right about Elfieva having a hand in Alfred's blinding and death, mm -hmm. it just goes to show not, uh, not about forgiveness. You know, that the family ties were really, really strong and the women played an important part in those families. Absolutely. No, it's it's fascinating. And, and it's interesting to kind of bring that distinction to it that this wasn't just a couple of men going at each other this was kingdoms and families and the wives and the sisters and daughters and sons they were all involved in yes, this incredible absolutely. story yeah very much so yeah so is there anything that we can kind of say in edrich's defense um at all i mean i've tried really hard i think that you know the chroniclers, in hindsight, knew to blame him for a lot of stuff. And ironically, if he'd had a hindsight, I think he might have behaved differently because if he was just followed Athelred's orders, fine. It was the fact of what came after that. And mm. it might not have been his idea to kill Seaforth and Morcar because that's really what then left him in a difficult position with Canute and Edmund because he couldn't really win from either side winning yeah but other than that no i don't i don't think anybody can particularly i don't think he'll ever be forgiven for the betrayal at ashingdon which caused canute to become full king and i think that's really why the chroniclers and history condemned him and i can't explain his rationale for the the side swapping during those battles no i'm afraid i can't really defend him yeah, well, I, I'm inclined to agree with that as well, because it seems like he's backed himself into a corner. He's yeah. made his bed. He has to lie in it. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on this episode of the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. This has been a fascinating story. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. And, oh, uh, thank you for having me. It's been great to chat about it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Dark Britain. If you want to find out more about Annie Whitehead and her work, you can check out her website at anniewhitehedauthor.co.uk and you can follow her on social media 
All the links and handles will be in the description and the show notes, so never fear. Make sure to follow Present History on all social media as well to keep up to date with all that's coming up. We've got some exciting stuff in the works, so stay tuned. And if you really want to, uh, you can follow me and Chloe on our personal accounts as well. All the links and handles will be in the description and the show notes, so get following. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Dark Britain, and we'll see you in the next one.